So something uh, interesting happened today. Um, a little piece of me dies every time I hear someone pronounce GIF as JIF. And so JIF Peanut Butter has actually teamed up with Giffy to help settle the debate once and for all and has created a JIF GIF can or container for their, uh, for their peanut butter. And you can actually order, order that on Amazon now. This is an attack on me. This is absolutely an attack on me. Oh, hey, friends. You did it. You got the right show. Welcome into the Unplugged program. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Wes, 342. It's going to blow the doors off. Might be our best yet. You know what I love? SSH. Me too. Who doesn't, right? And our guest, Jeremy, will join us in a little bit to show us some things you never knew SSH could do at a scale which blows my mind. There's things in there that are just going to maybe change the way you think about SSH, but potentially change the way you log into your systems in the future. It's a real cool, really, really cool chat we had. Uh, So he'll join us in a little bit. But we also have our standard affair of community news, some picks, some follow-up, and a lot more, like our virtual lug. Time-appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. 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 Happy Tuesday. Listen to that. That is a lot of people. That is a great turnout. Wimpy, it's great to see you again. Welcome back to the Unplugged Show. Hello again. Hello to everybody. Normally, when we have a great turnout like this, I'd read the names out, but there's so many in there. Uh, it's just not possible. So great to see so many of you. I, I really... Today is one of those days where it's great, it's great to have friends and there is an aspect of lugs that we don't talk about a lot and sometimes it can be a bit of a support group where it's it's where everybody knows your name and it's just what you need and today is one of those days for me. We'll get into that in a little bit. I have something I need to update everybody on but in the meantime, you guys are making all the difference for me today. I really appreciate that you're here. So if you'd like to participate in our virtual lug, please do because it's it's just getting better and better all the time. We do have the new time which will throw some people off. But I think it's worth it. What do you say, Wes? Should we start with some great community news? Yeah, we've got a lot to get into. Super excited to give an announcement out for to get the announcement out for the old Manjaro project. Version 19 of Manjaro is out. And of course, in there's tasty updates to the different desktop environments. As well as I haven't tried this yet. I was thinking about trying to get the old upgrade in before we started. Of course you were. <laughs> Still loving it on the ThinkPad, but I was <laughs> I just thought, you know what? I got a lot going on today. Today is not that day. But I believe in there now, and maybe actually, Wimpy, you may know, I believe in there now they have really smooth integration for snaps and flat packs, like just the old double click and it launches right up and gets installed. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I, I can't speak to the flat pack because I don't know what the extent of the work is there, but knowing uh, uh, the attention to detail Phil and team have shown snaps, I expect that both enjoy first-class support there now. Uh, I've had a chat with Phil. He's been showing me some of the development as it's been going along. And yeah, uh, they've got all of the packages available um, side by side. So you can take your pick where you need to take a pick. (laughs) You know what I noticed, Wes? They're using the LTS kernel. Hmm. That's a good idea. Huh. Wonder why we didn't think of that. There's a good reason for that. I wonder, you know, we actually, Wes and I, don't have the LTS kernel installed on our Archbox right now. And we, for the life of us, can't quite remember why, other than we just felt like being dumb. <laughs> like, I think we had the conversation, and I think it went something like, ah, screw it, let's see how far we can push this thing. <laughs> and it's been great for the show. 
Why do they use the LTS kernel, Whippy? It must be for drivers or something, right? Yeah, I think. Well, I know one of the reasons is the fact that the NVIDIA 390 kernel is not not compatible with anything newer than the 5.4 kernel. So I think it's there so that people that have got uh, older generations NVIDIA cards have still got um, you know a, su- a support route there on an LTS kernel. I think an LTS kernel is a pretty solid idea on a rolling distro. I'm a big fan after last week. All right. Well, there was a story that I think we've all been I'm – wondering, I'm wondering if you can guess what it is, Wes. There's a story out there that we have been led to believe we'd have an update that caused inconvenience for a bunch of enthusiastic purchasers, and we now have a resolution and an update. I'm trying to make it cryptic because I don't want to give it away, but Wes Payne, one guess. The Raspberry Pi 4 finally got its USB-C act together. That's right. That's right. That means I can finally buy one. I've been waiting for them to fix this. Yeah. Yep. You got it. Uh, So I guess, what was it? There was um, anything that uh, was marked with an E-cable for USB-C, isn't that? It was like one of the smarter USB-C type cables. Right. It wouldn't work with the Raspberry Pi 4. Yeah, they had some non-standard wiring, so it thought it was actually an audio device and wouldn't give it all the juice. You know, I mean, USB-C's got lots of fancy things, but you got to get those negotiations right if you want all the power that you have. Yeah. So it meant that some adapters worked and some didn't. Obviously, the one they supplied did, but... One of the nice advantages, in theory, of USB-C is right, we've all got all of these things laying around. With those first generation, they might not work. Yeah, I want to power my Raspberry Pi with my laptop adapter. Come on. <laughs> so the register reached out to uh, uh, Eben Upton, right? Eben? Eben? Sorry, Eben. I'm, it's not you, it's me. Mr. Upton. That's the way to go. Mr. Upton, and they asked him uh, about this and, like, what the hell, where's this at? And he said, yes, indeed, they had rolled a fix into their PCB designed for manufacturing, and he would expect that it has begun to reach end users by about now. Ooh. So if you're buying a Raspberry Pi now or in the near-term future, it will likely have the fix. So if you would do me a big solid, if you get one of these— and it does seem to be fixed, please let me know. I'd love to update folks and say, yes, they are actually out in the marketplace now. There was another interesting little tidbit to this story, though. When they were talking to Upton, he confirmed that the 4-gig version was really the one flying off the shelves, but I guess before the 4 launched, they thought it would be the 2-gig version. I think that's probably because of price. They thought the price was too high on the 4-gig version. Meanwhile, I was over here being... Could you make an 8-gig version? All right, I'll take all the RAM I can get. That, that's what I want. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, they kind of were they were kind of getting the data back in September showing the 4-gig was performing better. So I guess what this really is confirming actually is that that is still the case. The 4-gig is still the top-performing seller, which could mean maybe that 8-gig version will show up. That would be great. Fingers crossed. I, uh, I'm running three. I wanted to say four. But the fourth one's just for playing with. I'm running three in production at my home. One does, like, all of the things, probably too many things. Um, and then, like, you know, the other is just doing pie hole and, a, and um, one network uh, monitoring tool, smoke ping. And then another is uh, doing all of my security cameras um, using, what's that project called that I can't remember because I'm an old Shinobi? Man. Shinobi, thank you. And, um, I mean, I've been using them. For months now. It really has felt like the first sort of like, all right, I'll just deploy this and it'll work and it's powerful enough for all of my needs. It's not, you don't have to compromise too much. I'm pretty happy. And I'm I'm actually kind of 
feeling like I reaffirmed that decision to go. Uh, the Raspberry Pi f- for me has always been a toy. And as an old sysadmin, the idea of putting a toy in production for my server seems like a bad idea. And I still think I'll regret not getting more frequent um, DDs of my SD cards because I know one of those suckers is going to die on me soon. Hey, that's on you, buddy. I know. And there are ways you could get around it. You know, you don't have to use an SD card, but I actually kind of like the floppy disk like nature where I can just copy them. And anyways, where it has actually been pretty great is how freaking low power they are. Even the Raspberry Pi 4 is way less power than an x86, even a, even a low end x86. The whole, the whole load for my entire Lady Jupes RV with all of my smart lights on and all of my Raspberry Pis running, my Wi-Fi, my network switch, my router, all of that, and, and all my LED lights, all of it together is less than 200 watts, everything. That's fantastic. Even on a cloudy day, I get that in solar power. So I, I, I run my Raspberry Pis off of solar all day long. That's pretty cool. I don't think I could do it with an x86 PC in the Pacific Northwest. Right. You can really just optimize. It's just enough compute, just enough resources, and you don't have to compromise. And silent. You know, that's the other oh. thing. I, I, maybe, they'll die, maybe they'll die a year or two sooner than if I w- was not using them in production. But at that price point, realistically, I could replace just, all of them every year. Right. And I mean, the form factor is so easy. You know, you kind of grab it, you just slot in your new SD card, plug in, then mm-hmm. you're done. Mm-hmm. Well, and realistically, right, you're going to replace them when the 8-gig version comes out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially the one that I have that's running Plex and it's running a bunch of other containers like a, a document wiki and a bunch of network tools and all these other all these other services that really push the pie. To, I was really kind of see how far I could push it. And then I was like, okay, well now it's invaluable. <laughs> I pushed it really far and made it invaluable. You do have backups, right? Every night, every night. But you know, it's still not the same thing. I have all the data backed up and all the applications are in containers, but I'd still have to burn a day getting the OS all reconfigured and all of that. So I just don't want that. I've, I've I've insulated as much as I can, but I, sounds like you need to teach Dylan how to make copies of SD cards. <laughs> I like that. I like that you and Cheese keep coming up for with jobs for my son. This is good. I'll get a list from you guys and then <laughs> start getting. Them. Yeah, these are great chores. <laughs> Sorry, <man>. Dylan. <laughs> son, today I'm gonna I'm gonna learn you how to DD an SD card. Son. <laughs> I think I might DD rescue it. I don't know. Does anybody in the mumble room have tips for how to duplicate an SD card in the Raspberry Pi? Don't use DD or DD rescue. Mm. What, what should I reuse? What, this is good. Well, you know, GNOME, GNOME disks can restore disk images like, you know, uh, oh. SD card images onto SD cards. That works really nicely. It's not just using DD in the back end? No, of course not. It's for <laughs> animals. We've evolved since then, Chris. Okay. That was like, you know, 30 years ago. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm, I'm totally down for giving that a go. And it's so low impact to test it, right? Here's what I was thinking my process would be. Shut down the Raspberry Pi, pop it out of the Pi, pop the the good or the current production SD card in my ThinkPad, image it right off the built-in SD card reader, and then pop a new one in and restore the image to that, put that in the Raspberry Pi, see if it boots. Yeah, sounds good. And uh, Gnome Disks has create a disk image and restore a disk image, so you can do it all with a UI and not run the risk of uh, DDing over something critical. Yeah, but what if he's on Plasma? <laughs> I'll install Gnome Disk, it sounds like. <laughs> hey, uh, I will say Gnome Disk is actually really great. I'm, I'm running it on everything, even on Plasma. 
I've definitely taken a look at gnome disks. Is is there um, is there like a certain point where it's like you got to have at least this version, or has it just been good enough for a long time now? It's been there for as long as I can remember. I mean, I was certainly doing lightning talks about this four or five years ago. I thought someone was going to say Clonezilla to me. That's what I thought I would get suggested was Clonezilla. But I like this. This is much simpler. Chris, would not a good alternative to avoid the manual intervention here be to to simply run some rsync over the network to your backups? I, I mean, it's not as complete a solution, but it won't take you a day to restore. Yeah, and just rsync the file systems around. Yeah, I, I wonder, taking the whole theory of the Raspberry Pis are not so expensive that maybe it wouldn't be impossible to buy another $45 Raspberry Pi and have it running as sort of a cold backup that's syncing every day. And then if one dies, I just pull the plug out, plug in the other one. Why do you need to restore data and move data around? Uh, aren't you running everything in containers? Have a Docker Compose file stored somewhere off-site, GitHub maybe, and then spin up your containers, plug in your persistent storage, and you're good to go, aren't you? Yes. Mostly the data is solved for. It's really trying to avoid the hassle of spending the afternoon installing Raspbian, getting it updated, getting the Docker repo added, getting Docker installed, getting that data reinstalled, like avoiding all of that stuff that takes a guy like me an afternoon because, you know, I'm doing three other things and it's a Saturday. Um, I want to, I want something that's nearly like, plug a new SD card in, power it back on, and it's pretty much good to go. Because in theory, the data would be safe on because the data is stored on a separate disk. Have you heard of my friend Bash Script? He uh, he can do <laughs> a lot of that for you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's what Brett was saying, is maybe just automate so that it's always synced up. Yeah, I kind of like it. Or Ansible, or, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to solve this particular turkey. Mm-hmm. That is actually part of my problem. I got so many options. I can think of a half a dozen ways to do it. And then the internet could probably think of a hundred ways I could do it. You should probably pick the one that will be the best content for the future. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. So so I should say I should wipe all of them and put Arch on there. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the latest Manjaro release will be fine. <laughs> um, we'll see about that. I'm actually, I actually think if I were to reload them, I'd probably, I'd probably still for today, I'm not sure, stick with Raspbian. With the Raspberry Pi 4, it's been semi-necessary, although I think that's changing. So I, I may just relook at this in a few months and then redo it then. But I'm You know, sure. probably one of these will just fail on you, and then you'll have to figure yeah. out how to restore it, and you'll, you'll uh, figure it out then. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. That's, that's totally how that's going to go. <laughs> no problem. Well then, let's do a little housekeeping. There's a few things I'd like to tell you about. Number one, you have to go check out Brent's recent brunch. He sat down with Heather Ellsworth from Canonical. She's a software engineer on Canonical's Ubuntu desktop team. She's also a GNOME Foundation member. And she has quite a story, including a background in physics at CERN and just a great conversation overall. It gives you kind of an insight, too, at uh, Daily Life at Canonical as well. It's fun, Brent. This is one of my favorite brunches so far. Yeah, Heather's awesome. Um, Her chat, we could have chatted for... Probably two hours, but maybe that'll come sometime in the future. But anyway, she's she's fascinating. She's super awesome. I encourage everybody to check it out. Absolutely. Um, also, well, okay. So I have a little bad news. We have been trying to get this sorted out for a little while. I was hoping I wouldn't have to come on air and say this, but we will not be attending scale this year. And it's a little last minute. And the reason why that bothers me is because I know 
there's already some folks who have made travel plans to come out and see us. <clears throat> you guys are awesome. But the reality is just didn't work out this year. Uh, the merger happened just right around the time of uh, fest season and budgets are getting finalized and it just didn't iron out. So we decided to put our efforts and resources into Linux Fest Northwest, which is going forward. It's a shame. You know, we love coming out and seeing you guys. It's, it's a, you've heard me talk about how important the in real life connection is a million times on this show. And these are always our chance to actually practice what we preach. So it is unfortunate. Um, Elle will be there. She'll be doing her talk confessions of a sysadmin in Ballroom H on Saturday. Definitely don't want to miss that. So she will be there. You can go say hi to her. But your buddies, Chris and Wes, won't be making it this year. And um, it, it kills me, actually, to be honest with you. But we will try to make a great Linux Fest happen, and hopefully next year we'll make it work. I apologize that we weren't able to get the news out sooner. We were just trying to make it all work, but it just wasn't really in the cards. Wrong so, timing this time. Yeah, yeah. But it's going to be a great scale. Oh, yeah. We'll be looking on, and yeah. we'll, we'll be jealous and watching conference talks when they're available, and hope everyone has a great time. Jill, tell people where they can come find you, because I know you're going to be at scale, and you've always got it, so much going on. Yeah, so I will be at the Linux Chicks of Los Angeles booth and running that booth. And I'll also be doing um, interviews on the for floor for Linux Gamecast. And we're also going to go uh, live from Linux Gamecast. Woo. So, and at the Lutris booth. <laughs> so, Dang, wow. I'm going to be everywhere. <laughs> Jill, you are working it this year. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> Scale is such a great event. Uh, Linux Fest Northwest is our hometown event, but Scale, I think, is one of the best events. In the West. Yeah, and I'm going to miss my Jupiter Broadcasting family. Yeah, well, we'll miss you too. Yeah, yeah. it's always a good chance to, to catch up with everybody. That's one of the things we love about it. Yeah. But perhaps next year. So, all right. Well, then, the housekeeping goes on. One other thing I'll mention, go check out Headlines, linuxheadlines.show. We're doing something kind of neat here. We're trying out a new format, a three-minute podcast. That sounds crazy. How could that work? I like it. I, I I just put it on as I'm getting down the road, and then my my podcast player just plays the next thing. It's just sort of the way I start off. LinuxHeadlines.show, three minutes or less, everything going on. And here's what we try to do here. We, we try to do something that's not hypey, that's not not just taking PR releases, remassaging them, and then putting a headline on it that makes you want to click it. We've got a team of people that are dedicated to trying to get that accurate coverage in there, trying to get it just right. And then... Sometimes, to uh, our dissatisfaction, we all argue over the details for a while before we publish it to make sure everything's really massaged just right. And it gets reviewed by a team of us before it's published every day. You'd be amazed the amount of work we're putting into a three-minute show. But it, I, think, I think it's kind of important, especially if you're in the industry, you want to keep aware of what's going on, you want to be current, sort of like due diligence in a sense, but you don't need to commit to two hours or an hour long. Just get the headlines every weekday at linuxheadlines.show. And then the stuff that really needs a deeper analysis, further discussion, we'll either do it here or we'll put it on Linux Action News on yeah. Sunday. And of course, we've got links to everything so you can find out more. Bob is indeed your uncle on that one, I say. So check that out, linuxheadlines.show. And last but not least, a plug for the old Telegram group, just rocking it out. People are awesome over there. Some super good conversations. I thought for sure it would fall apart as it got huge, and it's gotten better. It, it, it boggles the mind. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash Telegram. Go get in a 1,500 and stronger group over there that are talking about these shows, Linux, and everything in between. 
jupiterbroadcasting.com slash telegram. Yeah, we actually just crossed 1,600. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that's a, that's, that's, wow. and it's just a nice place to be. Great conversations basically all the time. That is so cool. All the time. Now, we have a little bit of a public service announcement that I want to get into on the program. This is something that's going to impact those that are in the makerspace or, or love to see technology, cutting-edge technology, and see where it can go and tinker with it. We cut now live to our reporter on the scene. Alex, I'm hearing that people are getting very upset about new drone changes that are coming to the States. While not strictly Linux, actually a lot of these drones do run Linux. Uh, and I was kind of hoping maybe you could update me because I have not properly educated myself. So the thing that I'd like to bring to the audience's attention is something called Remote ID. And Remote ID is effectively an electronic license plate for all model aircraft. It's not just drones. So we're talking about helicopters, planes, anything that flies, essentially, is that's an unmanned vehicle, UAV. So on December the 31st of 2019, the FAA published a proposal for what Remote ID is going to look like. And you have 60 days to comment. And that period ends on March the 2nd. Now, what happens after those comments are reviewed is the FAA will publish a final report and the new rules will take effect 60 days after that. So why is it such a big deal? Well, for me, there's several things that are an overreach here. Um, so let me just break a couple of the key things down that kind of rub me up the wrong way. Firstly, I, I build all my own drones, like racing drones and that kind of stuff. And, um, as it stands, you will not be able to do that anymore because you will need to buy 100% FAA approved components, else you will be restricted to FAA recognized flying sites, otherwise known as freers. Now, most of those are AMA, American Model Association fields. So I don't know if, if you've, if you're into FPV or drones and you've ever tried to go to a plane field, you get the stink eye and you're not really very welcome there. Um, so you'll only be able to fly self-built models three years after these new rules go into effect at these freer sites. Now, a further kicker is that they're not approving any new freer sites ever because as they assume in their rules, all craft will be remote ID capable. So there'll be no need for new freers to be approved. Well, that's just not true. So in terms of where you can can and cannot fly, you will not be able to fly in your own backyard, on your own property. You will not be able to fly in parks, uh, anywhere that is basically currently legal. I mean, obviously national parks and stuff like that are still out of range. But I think it's just a huge overreach to try and regulate the, the model aircraft's base, that sort of sub 400 feet altitude space, uh, so that, People like Amazon and FedEx and UPS can start flying commercial delivery drones. Um, so if your aircraft is not remote ID capable, you will only be able to fly it at a pre-approved freer site. If your aircraft can share location via the internet, so this, this addresses most DJI type products, you will need to subscribe to a subscription service, which hasn't yet been decided. So let's assume a minimum of $5 a month. And at that point, you can only fly in a 400-foot sphere around you. So that includes up, but also sideways. So 400 feet, that's it. You have this drone that can go five kilometers, and you can do 400 feet. So I think it's pretty egregious. I think it's a horrible overreach. Now, um, what can you do about it? You can leave a comment on the FAA website, 
before March 2nd. Please try not to make it an emotional type, reactional type comment that, you know, FAA sucks, that kind of thing. It's not very helpful. Um, but instead focus on the specific areas of remote ID that you think are unworkable or an overreach and propose alternate solutions such as app-based systems. Lance is something that already exists for part 107 commercial pilots to essentially say, hey, I'm going to fly here through an app, get pre-approval from the air- to fly in that airspace. And just remember that as this proposal stands, it's going to pretty much kill the remote control hobby as we know it. Yeah, it's a shame because it seems like that community has been really blossoming. It's a, it's a makerspace thing now. Like Building these little drones is a maker thing. It's a huge part of the reason I'm into electronics and self-hosting and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, uh, I got into building my own quadcopters and learned electronics through that. And that's led to a whole bunch of other stuff that anybody who listens to self-hosted will be familiar with. So many prominent YouTubers have released really excellent content on this topic, including Flight Test, Joshua Bardwell, Rotor Riot, Mr. Steel, etc., etc. Um, so please leave a comment for the FAA, even if you don't live in America. Uh, just leave a comment anyway. <laughs> Let's try and get the numbers up. Um, if you want to help make a difference, you can also join me and thousands of other people Uh, remote control pilots who are going to be in Washington, D.C. this Saturday, the 29th of February for a protest outside the FAA headquarters uh, just off the National Mall. So um, thanks for letting me raise the awareness of this issue, Chris. Yeah, we wanted to talk about it now since the the timing is critical. There you have it. There's Alex with our drone update. He didn't mention it, but he's actually being carried by a drone right now. Thank you, Alex, for that very important public announcement. Yeah, we'll go, have uh, go speak on it if you can. Make some, make some comments, make some noise, and hopefully there'll be some reconsidering done. So now I want to talk about Zero Trust SSH. This is something that is so cool. Jeremy's going to join us and talk about things I never knew were possible for SSH authentication. It, tr- it truly is the magical, magical fruit in open source. And he's, he's got some problems to solve that I'd never really contemplated before. All right, well, we all use SSH, and I mean, I dare say love it, right? Love from, it. from port forwarding to proxying to just getting to a server securely, it's super handy. But we don't all use it in the best way. I mean, I'm looking at you, Chris. You're one who uses password-based <laughs> authentication. A lot of times, unless it's like just a few of the regular machines, I just stick to passwords. But you at least know you have other options, things like uh, public-private key pairs that you can use to get onto servers. Well, there's another way to do it, and it has some advantages, and Jeremy had a great presentation all about how you might actually use it. SSH has certificates, and Jeremy, thanks for joining us to tell us more. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, um, password-based auth, it is sort of maybe the first introduction you get to SSH. You know, you sort of start it up and then try and SSH straight away, and you're prompted for your password, and you think, Oh well, you know this is pretty familiar and it works. Works no what no problem. Um, but then, as you pointed out, there's that public-private key authentication, and maybe if you're like me, you you sort of try to try it out because it was a bit of a more exciting way to connect, you know, or, or you've just gotten gotten tired of typing in your password all the time, or maybe even if you're at a company, it might you might be required to use private-public key authentication. Um, so there's some distinct advantages with private public key versus password based. You're kind of authenticating your laptop to to the server instead of your password. So there's there's some advantages that you can't accidentally mistype your password into the wrong, you know, wrong prompt, for example. 
there's some other neat advantages of public private key, but the like you said, the third way that I, I discovered is already in OpenSSH since seven point uh, seven point something I can't remember is yes yeah, certificate based um, authentication. It's not an X five hundred nine certificate. It's a it's a um, kind of a lightweight certificate. Really, all it is is your public key that's been signed by another private key. A little bit of metadata like, you know, expiry and uh, username, things like that. Um, but that's 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 all it is really. So you instead of having your public key and private key, you have your public key plus that signature and your private key. And you can't have a chain of trust like in like in a normal um, X509 certificate, like a TLS certificate. So you can't have like a root authority and then an intermediate and then, you know, things like that. You, you, it's just one. You just have one level of delegated trust. That's right. That's right. But when you go and SSH to a server, so with with public private key, what you need to do is put your public key on the server. Right. I think we've all been through that, having to share your private key with someone or copy the public key over so that it's there. And maybe you've got a little script to help you with it. Exactly. Um, and maybe you're giving that to your, you know, to your IT teams, like, oh, here's my public key. Um, except with, so with a SSH certificate, you, um, you never have seen the host has never seen you before, right? So, you you try and SSH to it, and as long as your public key has that signature of the trusted certificate authority, then the host will go, oh, great, this is you, this is Jeremy. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you connect. So it kind of switches things up here. If, I, if I'm getting this right, you can tell that host to, to trust anything signed by your certificate authority, and then it doesn't have to have any specific keys added. Anything that's been signed, it'll automatically grant access to. Absolutely. So for an individual, I mean, unless you have hundreds of servers, it might not be so so much of an advantage over public-private key itself. Um, because you, I mean, it's not necessarily any more secure cryptographically. Right, it's using the same keys and the same infrastructure. Exactly. Yeah, but when you start having more than one person or it's like a little a team to manage keys for, I don't know if you've been through the pain of managing a team of public keys. I've definitely managed the, the a chef repository to push those yeah, exactly. it's it was not a lot of fun. Well, I mean even just on even just adding another one. I mean at my previous company we used Puppet and the 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 flow for adding a new user was was quite literally you know get pull get commit add the public key make a pull request get someone to review the pull request um, you know then merge the pull request and then watch the CI server deploy puppet and wait for an hour you know it was a bit of a, a bit involved for just adding a user to the system it, it's something some time that I just shouldn't have been spending doing anything like that I should do something else um, so I really wanted to automate team management of SSH on hosts. And it doesn't matter where your hosts are. They could be in Amazon, Google Cloud, or Azure kind of thing, or it could just be your own servers in your closet somewhere. But yeah, SSH certificates will will really help a team manage their access. Because if you imagine your hosts suddenly don't need to know in advance that your user is going to connect to it, then you can bring up new hosts all the time. But as long as the users can go to that certificate authority, get their SSH certificate signed, and then connect to your host, it'll be smooth sailing. That sounds really nice, honestly. But 
how do you go about making sure all those certificates get signed? Is that another manual process or can you automate? Yeah, so that's, that's a good point. And so, you know, have I just swapped my problem for now public key infrastructure and managing public keys <laughs> and prior, uh, you know, yeah. certificates? And you're kind of right because it's maybe a more difficult problem even than, um, than just public keys. But one of the ways I was going about it was to create the certificate authority in as light as possible way, and I was we happened to use Amazon, um, so AWS for our for most of our other things. So I built a certificate authority in the Lambda function. So it's not not a new concept actually. Netflix, I, I found it first with Netflix. They have a project called Bless Bastions Lambda Ephemeral SSH Service. Bit of a mouthful, <laughs> but, but they but they were still using this jump host idea, uh, and it was connecting. Use use SSH to that to that first jump host in the infrastructure, and then it would go off to the Lambda function, which is really just um, you know a bit of code running somewhere in Amazon. Who knows where could be <laughs> could be on their uh, on their vacuum cleaner. I don't know. Um, so <laughs> you, you you run your Lambda function, and then um, it it will sign your certificate for you, sign your public key. Sure. So you send a public key, it'll sign it and send you back the signed key. That's correct. So what Lyft did, which was quite interesting, is they decided, well, we don't really want this Bastion host because it's just you know complicating things and our infrastructure is maybe not set up for it. So they decided to make a Python client that worked on um, developers' laptops. So every developer's laptop itself could go and sign its public key. And it would invoke that Lambda function itself. And they had a really clever KMS um, auth thing. Um, to, to sort of get, prove your identity to the Lambda to say, yes, I need my certificate signed. And remember, all the Lambda's doing is just takes your public key, it's got a private key pair, private key, public key pair, and it just signs your public key. It needs to know what username to put into that certificate. So it kind of needs to know your identity, it needs to know your, your identity, a, a good sense of your identity. Because if, if I could get my certificate signed with someone else's username, then I'd be able to connect as them. Right, you've still got this trust layer you need to take care of. Exactly. And actually, it's funny in like a zero trust model, the idea being that you 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 know you don't trust anything inside your network or outside your network. Um, so yeah, kind of each each um, piece is, is should be on its own. You know, you don't you don't have like this firewall and everything beyond this uh, firewall is this wonderful garden. The the funny thing is zero trust is almost like more trust, right? Because you 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 you're adding all this all these extra layers of right now you're authenticating everywhere. Exactly. So. One thing I just I tried to do and uh, with the lambda that I wrote was to use OpenID Connect to authenticate to the lambda. So you kind of like sign in with Google to get yourself that certificate. It just creates that identity token, um, which is this bit of signed JSON JWT by by Google, and you can pass that over to your lambda, and it can verify yes your email address is correct, and it can put your email as your username, for example. So then in this mode, onboarding, I'm thinking, I mean, here at Jupyter Broadcasting, we've got, we've got some G Suite going on, right? So I could, I could configure a, a new user there, which I'd probably have to do anyway. Right. And then if it was all set up correctly, they could just have access to servers. That's the dream. That a new, a new um, engineer starts, and they have their laptop, and they already have, already have the access that they need without you having to do anything other than put them in the correct groups in your directory, right? Right. I mean, this this is kind of a solved problem if you think, um, you know, Active Directory, LDAP, you know, like there's all these 
that that's that's all all existing but what i'm what i'm seeing is a lot of companies moving away from having you know those traditional directories and going just sort of just cloud native um services so you might just have g suite for example um and if you don't have a, a directory like active directory how do you now leverage some of those tools that are all set up for it if you're not if you're not running ldap do you do you you know what's the alternative kind of thing and i think this is a good alternative when you say that there's a companies out there that don't have directory services too i think to our audience that is using active directory or ldap that sounds ridiculous but wes and i have and may currently have worked for companies that have no LDAP, no no Active Directory. It is truly, it's a G Suite authentication system. Right, maybe you're running Slack, you're right? None of these things necessarily need They're, that yeah. backend infrastructure. Right. Absolutely. So for, for the company I was at, it seemed a bit silly to to provision LDAP just for just for managing this. Right. And you also, you're going to also need people to manage LDAP, right? That's exactly. That's yeah. own arcane art. So help me understand how shrimp plays into this because I I loved that you got a name for a component for of shrimp <laughs> during the talk too. That was a great that was a great moment of your talk. Oh yes. Well, I was going through why I named named it shrimp. Um and so shrimp has shells, right? Shrimp have shells and got a bit of groan from right. the audience for that one. Um lightweight Right, so um, I guess you could have a really massive shrimp. I don't know. <laughs> all, this, all the shrimps are pretty lightweight. Um, and then uh, someone yelled out, "Shrimps on the barbie!" Right, like a classic Australian expression. Comes from an advertisement um, ages ago, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, I had to integrate that somehow. I was looking for a name for the backend component, so maybe that was the barbecue. You know, so like shrimps on the barbie. Kind of thing, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so, shrimp is the name that ties all of this together. That it's the it's the different components that enable you to use lambda for this aspect. Right. Yeah. It's, so, shrimp is the there's two parts. There's the lambda, and then there's the client on your on your laptop. So, you 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 need something to go and automate the process of like giving your public key to the lambda, and then re- receiving back the signed certificate and, and using it in your connection. I mean, you can you can use just SSH keygen. You know, there's not, nothing special about what these tools are using. Um, it's just sort of automating it in a way that really makes it easy for, for developers to get going. The, I think the idea is, well, my idea was if you make it easier, but also a little bit more secure, people will, will jump on it really, really quickly um, and really want to use it. But if it's just slight, if it's slightly more inconvenient, even though it's more secure, people will try and find a way around it. So true. Right. If you can give them an easy and secure option that's right at their fingertips, right. there's no reason to choose the wrong path. Exactly. So I want, I want a method that they, they don't even need to, you know, put your public key anywhere. You don't need to like copy and paste anything. You don't, you just, you're just up and running already. Um, so what part of that was the client actually runs an SSH agent. So normally your SSH agent manages your private keys for you. Um, so it's a program running on your laptop. Maybe it's even on a, on a, um, partially on a smart card or a YubiKey. Sure. Your, your SSH agent kind of manages that. Where is your private key? So I wrote an SSH agent. Well, actually the Go, um, Golang crypto SSH module is really great. They have an agent implementation there. So it's almost like just... You plug into it. Yeah, ex- exactly. So I use the SSH agent um, to provide this Lambda-based you know, certificate signing feature. So when your SSH client says, hey, I need the list of public keys, 
I'm trying to connect to my connect to your server. Um, it will ask the agent to say, what have, what have you got for me? And at that point, the agent can say, oh, just hang on one second. I've just got to go and just check what's in my, you know, Lambda closet over here. Just give me, give me a few minutes. <laughs> and it goes off and signs your, so it actually generates a new private public key and then goes and signs the public key. And then it returns to the SSH client and says, oh yes, everything's normal. Don't worry about it. Here's the, here's the public key and private key. So to the SSH client itself, it doesn't, none of that matters. He just gets back the key that it needs and it ships it off to the server. Exactly. The advantage of that is like tools, other tools that kind of use SSH work kind of work just great. It's like um, rsync or, S, you know, uh, your scopy or maybe even, um, you know, Ansible or something like that. Those kind of tools, they just will be none the wiser. Some other ways of doing this kind of rely you on wrapping the SSH command. You know, so if you wrap it in another command, but that almost breaks that flow. So you can't really use those other downstream tools that are using SSH underneath. Hmm. Well, Jeremy, thank you for joining us. Uh, what time is it where you're at right now? I've just uh, just hit 7.30 in the morning. <laughs> thank you for getting up early Absolutely. to chat with us. No we really appreciate it. And we will link to the talk. Uh, anything else you think we ought to link to? Obviously, we'll link to Shrimp. Any other suggestions? Uh, so that Shrimp um, repository. I've got the Git repo for that. Um, one thing I didn't didn't mention, which I found in the last week, and it's not actually in that talk, is um, is Keybase. Have you guys have you guys heard of Keybase? Oh, oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Keybase.io slash Chris Lass. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, hey, well, you're gonna have a new follower very soon. Um well, Keybase, there's a blog post um where they've implemented their own SSH certificate authority on top of Keybase. Oh neat. And it's the most bizarre chat ops use case I've seen. <laughs> where essentially because there's no secrets being exchanged when you sign these certificates, right? You just give your, um, you're giving your public key and then the, the server, your certificate authority is signing it. You know, that bit's done in, in, in private. Right. But then it gives you back your certificate, which is also a public thing. Right. There's no secret exchange between the machines. Exactly. And it can do it over the key-based chat. And it uses the Keybase API to to do it for you. So it runs on your computer. It uses your Keybase if you're signed into Keybase. And then you have a chatbot on the other end also listening on that same channel. And when it says, hey, I want to sign my public key, it goes, okay, what's your username? And because Keybase has such a strong sense of identity, it knows, oh, yes, it's the right Chris. I mean, I haven't reviewed their source code, but if it's true that they claim end-to-end -end encrypted and the way they've implemented it, um, it will be very, very difficult to impersonate your chat message. So it's it really is coming from your laptop that it should be your request for a public key. Um, and then the chatbot just signs it, and then here you go. Here's your public key, which is kind of cool because the SSH certificate authority doesn't need to be publicly listening on the internet. It doesn't have to be a Lambda function that can be invoked somehow or a, or a server running on EC2 that, that is you know, listing on some port. You just need to be able to connect to Keybase. Exactly. It's kind of like an outbound connection. It could be a Raspberry Pi in your office, for example, it, it, or whatever, wherever you're, you know. That's, that's, I've, I've tried it out. It's actually really neat. That does sound really neat. It's worth including. I, I gave this talk at um, Auckland OWASP Day, like um, our security conference here in Auckland. And I included that part as well. It was, it's just it's just just awesome. 
you know, I love all of the ways you can use SSH. It's, 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 really, so, it's just been proven such a flexible tool to build on, I guess. No kidding. Couldn't have said it better myself. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us and going through some of this. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, it was great that Jeremy was able to join us and talk about that. But it's really still worth watching his whole talk because we've only scratched the surface. One thing we didn't get into but is really neat about these certificate-based solutions is you can set the expiry time really low. So for Netflix as an example, they just sign their certs for, for two minutes, just long enough to let you SSH to whatever box you're actually trying to get to, but then you can never use it again. Whoa, a two-minute SSH Sir, that's it. So you, so they, when they issue the certificate, they just can set a tiny expiration window. Yeah, and you can do other things like limit where that's coming from to particular hosts or IP ranges. Say, all of these just go so much in the other, more secure direction from adding a key to a server and then never touching it again. But you'll want to check out other stuff. There's lots of neat ways to actually make this work at scale. We'll have links to all the tools, including Jeremy's excellent shrimp tool. <laughs> Such a great name. It was nice for Jeremy to join us because uh, he was in New Zealand, right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, one other thing I loved about his talk is it was actually contained inside of an SSH certificate. He wrote a Python script to display the talk. Yeah. And then you can actually, you can with the certificates, you can use the force the force command option to basically like when you SSH to the server, it, it runs that command. <laughs> and then the command ran his Python script, which then started up and displayed his presentation in the terminal. I it's am, fantastic. I am both like intrigued and a little a little perplexed by the idea of using Keybase chat, but I could see some advantages, especially in certain networking conditions. Huh. Keybase is something we should probably talk more about. Remember how SSH can do all these crazy things? I mean, I just kind of use it the most basic way possible. I, I feel fancy when, like when I do X1140 or copy a file. That's, oh, look at me. I'm fancy. <laughs> ah, that's pretty great. Um, we will have links to all of that as always. But before we go into the picks, I thought maybe we could do a little follow-up on the old Arch upgrade we did last week, which did not go so well during the show. No, it did not. Boom, 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 We got a new kernel, which you know, wasn't yet supported by the uh, ZFS on Linux project. So that didn't work. Pause there. Here's a great example of when you are are kind of rolling the dice with Arch on a server because there is no central control making sure that you don't release a kernel that is incompatible with the version of ZFS you're shipping. In a traditional distribution targeted specifically at the enterprise, those are the very kinds of things that they work out and prevent hitting you in an update. Now, we know that going in, we were just kind of playing fast and loose. And there, there is um, a side repo, like the Arch CFS repository, which has uh, kernels and those things a, a little more in sync. We're not using that. This is just the stock kernel at the moment. At the moment. You did try the LTS kernel for a bit, but it had issues as yeah, well, Yeah, right? there, there was some bug going on. It looked like that was going to be resolved more quickly than the... Um, GPL symbol issues that seem to be lurking for kernel 5.5. So the old snapshot and rollback system worked mostly smoothly, except for you had to go remove a a particular folder or file somewhere, right? Yes. So uh, when we didn't have support for ZFS, that didn't get mounted. We are integrating Docker on that host with ZFS, so it wants to go talk to ZFS. Doesn't find it, but does end up making a folder under varlib docker that when you restore ZFS support means ZFS won't mount cleanly. Right, because now all of a sudden yeah, something so exists there. Just had to go clear that out, reboot, everything came back. So to be clear, we were using essentially ButterFS snapshots to restore the system back. Yep. And then we have ZFS snapshots for the data. Exactly. 
But our particular issue was is that the ZFS array would not mount after the kernel upgrade. And then even after we rolled back, it still failed to mount because it had created that directory. Um, but nice fixing. I mean, you had it all fixed within a few minutes. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of options that we could do. Um, I'm sure that the latest kernel will get support before too long, so you can also do upgrades where you just leave the kernel out of upgrading, right? I mean, that's or a fine kernel. install it with the LTS kernel. Or get an LTS with. kernel that uh, is probably the better idea. <laughs> yeah, this is legitimately why we're doing this, is so you don't have to. If you ever wondered what it's like, our philosophy here is arch with belts and suspenders and everything backed up containerized or VM'd, nothing actually running, for the most part, on the Arch host box. That's the theory, and I think we kind of proved it out with these rollbacks. This uh, issue here with that directory getting created only happened because we tried to bring the system all the way back up without the right um, ZFS module. Right. If we had not done that, that issue would not have happened. Um, The rollbacks... Worked for the most part with that one exception. Yeah, and, and if that, I just uh, remembered to right. delete that file before rebooting, it would have been. So potentially, if this ever were to happen again, that rollback process you went through would be a hundred percent effective. Mm-hmm. So, how long in total would you say now that you've done it? If you ever had to do it again, would it take you five minutes? That's not bad. And I mean, and you a reboot also, in there, a you know, reboot in there as well, right? And a reboot, yeah. yeah. So that varies depending on uh, you know your your slow server like ours. Yeah, we could have also just downgraded the kernel, you know, from the the package cache as well. Uh, but it was more fun to use Snapper. <laughs> Cubicle Nate wants me to just switch it over to to SUSE. Yeah, one day we might try that. You never know. Yeah, that might be next in the old uh, server reboot queue. Uh, see, what I'm concerned about is we'll be all like, "Hey, let's try out 2004 Ubuntu LTS." We'll put it on there. And then we'll have no reason to remove it, so we'll never try anything else again. <laughs> well, I was just thinking that with Arch, and okay, yeah, so we did have to futz around a little bit. That did take a little time to go investigate, and you yeah. know, here I am on the ZFS on Linux GitHub looking at issues. <laughs> but it is also means I don't have to reinstall. There's no next Fedora that's coming out, or even a next LTS release. Like, that's just work I'm never going to do. Right. I right. mean, probably not because so maybe you know. maybe you diffuse that work throughout the lifetime of the box instead of sort of bundling it all up at once. That's the theory. Although you still have updates on all systems, they're not all just as crazy and wild. That's right. We've got not one but two app picks this week, and one is a collaborative ASCII canvas. What? Yeah, I mean, haven't you ever just wanted to hang out with your buddies and do some collaborative ASCII? Because that's what it's all about. Most days. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, that's what, like every Thursday? Yeah, I mean, it's not collaborative ANSI, but, you know, it's ASCII work for for a time being. Or say you're (laughs) SSHing around with your two-minute Netflix keys and you want to get with your buds at Netflix for two (laughs) minutes and jump onto the server and collaborate on some ASCII. SSHing around is one do. Yeah, SSHing around. That's what we do. I think we could do show notes in here. We'll just have to change our format a little bit. Go to two columns. So Kolaski, Kolaski, I guess that's how you pronounce it, it, uh, is is a pretty neat little app that'll allow you to uh, collaboratively uh, draw on an ASCII canvas together. Because why not? It's great. It's great fun. That's pretty good. But I'm trying to live the Encurse's lifestyle, Cheese. So Mm -hmm. what do you got for me? If I just want to go in curses all the time. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if you want to in curse, you know, your way into a display manager, uh, you can check out Lie, um, which is a terminal display manager, uh, which essentially will allow you to log into all of your favorite desktop environments, uh, Budgie, Cinnamon, Deepin, Enlightenment, Gnome, 
Wow. Okay. I never knew I needed this, but I'm I'm kind of in love. Finally. I mean, how long have we all been waiting? Well, doesn't it feel silly to have this whole display manager thing anyway? It just gets in the way. No kidding. And good news works on Dev1 too, so no yeah. system D required. And nice. uh-huh. there's also a feature so that you can enable the uh, PlayStation Doom Fire effect. And oh, good. If, if you if you don't know what that is, I'll I'll drop a link there into the channel. But um, it's just a beautiful um, ASCII fire effect. See how these things kind of tie together. Yeah. You see, anyway. and people say Linux is just for geeks. <laughs> Look at this, right? Come on, super Think nerd point fun. made. Yeah, those are great. Thank you, Cheesy. Those are really great. Uh, if Even if you're not going to install these, uh, I encourage you to check out the links because they have screenshots and videos. and um, <laughs> They're just fun. Super fun. Speaking of fun, I hear there's about to have, they're about to have some fun over there at the Ubuntu podcast. Things are in the works again, Wimpy, for a brand new season. They most certainly are. Yes, season 13 confirmed, and we're in pre-season preparation stages at the moment uh should start recording in march was there any discussion to go right to 14 you know just for the you know avoiding bad luck no we've decided to fully embrace the 13 oh, oh. i like it good for you ubuntupodcast.org i'm going to give a mention for my website chrislast.com not only do i have my uh, chris last cast there but that's where I'll be keeping links to what I'm up to and uh, some of my uh, pro- social profiles like my key base, I think, is on there. Oh. As well as uh, future things. So check out chrislast.com for that. I think you have some awesome pictures of your RV up there, too, don't you? The new solar setup? That's on worklifeandrv.com, Cheesy. Oh. <laughs> Which you can get to from Chris Last. That's true. It is linked on chrislast.com. Hey-oh, ba-dum-bum-tsh. You know, we should mention, you know, we haven't plugged for a little while. Speaking of pictures, is the gallery. Oh, yeah. Jupiter.gallery. Go check out some of Cheesy's work there. And that's going to be updated here uh, at Linux Fest Northwest. And so if you are there and you do take pictures and you want to share them, just uh, email me and we'll get those up on the gallery. Linux Fest. Now, that's what I'm putting everything into now. Putting everything into Linux Fest now. That's all I got. That's all I got. Uh, go get more Wes Payne over at techsnap.systems. And he's on the Twitter. Where are you over there? At Wes Payne. Pal. Guess what? I'm at Chris L.E.S. Oh, Did you know? You did know. You can admit it. Yeah, I knew. At this point, if you didn't know, there'd be something seriously wrong, dude. You know, I think even, like, the network has one. <laughs> I think it might. At Jupiter Signal. What? But does the podcast have one? At Linux Unplugged? Oh my gosh! We're all over Twitter. They're like tribbles. They're like tribbles. Of course, we're live. We'd love to have you here. It makes all the difference. Please join! JBLive.tv on a Tuesday starts at noon Pacific. We usually actually get rolling a little earlier, yeah, 1130. Come in early for the excellent pre-show. Yeah, and of course there's post-show. You hear a little tiny bit of it in the release version, but there's a lot more every Tuesday. JBLive.tv. We'll see you then! program oh i think jaybot had a little much too much to drink at lunch i think uh 
You well, know, we shouldn't have given him access to the tab. I don't understand why J-Bot gets lunch on Tuesdays and we don't. How did that work out? How did how did he get that arrangement? We don't get lunch and J-Bot does? Come on. I don't like any of this. This is not a fair arrangement. So we will have to rerun the title votes here in a moment after Wes— Sometimes it saves it. Sometimes. We'll Wes, see. Wes will go and try to rescue our— <laughs> <laughs> Our other Arch server in production, which has been in production for a bajillion years, actually. Yeah, I'd like to point out this one was not my idea. <laughs> <laughs> it has been running forever, though. So when we get that going. Forever, we'll, ever. Uh, forever, ever. Um, in a very special way. So uh, not one that we would recommend. Mm, 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 mm. So, Brian, I thought you weren't going to be here. Did you uh, just get all your work done super quick? Were you a super efficient photographer? Yeah, you know, the great thing about being a professional is you can get things done faster. So everybody's happy. Client's happy. Photographer's happy. I got lunch right in before I'm heading here. It's all great. Brent, I don't believe for a moment you did something quickly. Nuh-uh. Nope. <laughs> hey, now. He, actually, though, when you see him bust out that camera, man, he'll just boom. You, the next thing you know, he's taking pictures. Like, it just goes from zero to taking pictures. The camera, yes. But editing uh, or anything. Oh, that, well, yeah. No. <laughs> I just he's don't not done it. with the editing. He's not done with it. Come hey, on. Give him a break. Done. He just took the pictures today. <laughs> yeah. how's, how's the life on the farm been, Brent? Aren't you farm sitting? Oh, man, yeah. I got to farm sit the last few days for good, good friends of mine who have farm about maybe like 45 minutes from here. And I've worked on their farm a few times. What? But what? Well, hold on. We got a Chris last cast about this. This sounds, mm-hmm. this sounds castable, my friend. Did you take care of the animals? Yeah, so it's still, you know, the deep of winter here. So they only have like laying hens and their two uh, dogs. How big's the farm? Oh, so they do mostly vegetables. So I think they're farming like two acres of like uh, basically a huge collection of vegetables. They oh, I'd do love to. Okay, all right. Don't tell me too much. Cool. Don't tell me too much. <laughs> I think this is. I think keep this, it for the Christmas. I think this is castable. You know, I have I have family. I have a family farm on my mom's side up in Canada. Oh. Um, what? Yeah. How do I not know this? Yeah, well, <laughs> we got something to cast about, I my mean, friend. Secret, yep. secret yep. farms. Uh-huh. I get like a mental image that Brent's just like out in the field picking carrots and stuff, like uh, just having a snack. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I did last time I was there. There's a version of me that just nopes out of the internet, and I'm just like, I'm out, and I just go to the farm, and I spend the rest of my life on the farm. And I think it sounds wonderful. You know, Chris, I was actually, while I was there, I was trying to disconnect a little bit to use it as uh, a means of just having a bit of a quieter, you know, 24 hours. And I was thinking back to the Linux Unplugged episodes where we were talking about some strategies to kind of Mm -hmm. deal with burnout and stuff like that. I was thinking, hmm, something I try to do often is have these little like 24, 48 hour little retreats and you don't have to go very far. You just have to go somewhere all right, all right, hold different. On. I got, I got a response. We, we can't talk about this. We can't, we got to <laughs> save it. Write that down. Deep. You're getting too deep boys. Now, I got you have I, the notebook. You write it down. I didn't bring it in here with me today. <laughs> I, I, that's something we should yes. touch on too. I know. Well, I have uh, my didn't backup you notebook. Have I do have a, a whole backup podcast one. about keeping notes and notebook. I got a backup notebook. Right. It's just not my notebook. So I'm not as inclined to want to write in it. You know what I mean? Like I've got an attachment to my notebook. I'll also point out the, um, six computers that yes. are around. I'm all, I'm no longer writing on computers anymore, Wes. So actually I have specific note insights I'd like to share. Are too. you uh, also hanging your clothes up on the clothesline? Just sort of becoming Brent. <laughs> I wish, I wish if I, I tell you what, I'd consider it. If I could make this Mate jacket last another few years, I think I'd do it. I'm still, Wimpy, <laughs> oh my God, what are the chances the day you show up, I'm wearing the Monte it's, jacket? I think you might have summoned him. I think I did. Well, there you go. Yeah, I think that's how it works. That is so funny. Yeah, I, I just started wearing it. And, oh, wow, that's a weird question. <laughs> You're going to have to start wearing it every Tuesday. <laughs> I got mine the same time I sent yours over, and it's still 
yeah. still in regular use. Yep, yep. yep. I, it's just the perfect temperature this time of year right now for it. It's not too much. It's not too little. Um, and it accommodates my ever-expanding sizes, you know, because I, I seem to just fluctuate in size all the time now, and it, it sticks with me. I appreciate that, too. <laughs>